Welcome to Teleforum, a podcast of the Federal Society's practice groups. I'm Dean Reuter, Vice President, General Counsel, and Director of Practice Groups at the Federal Society. For exclusive access to live recordings of practice group Teleforum calls, become a Federal Society member today at fedsoc.org. Welcome to the Federalist Society's virtual event. This afternoon, April 1st, 2022, we discuss courthouse steps oral argument, Egbert v. Boulet. My name is Ryan Lacey, and I'm an assistant director of practice groups at the Federalist Society. As always, please note that all expressions of opinion are those of our experts on today's call. Today, we are fortunate to have an excellent panel moderated by Judge David Strauss, whom I'll inter- introduce briefly. Judge Strauss is a circuit judge of the United States Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit, and he's a former associate justice of the Minnesota Supreme Court. Prior to becoming a judge, Strauss was a member of the faculty at the University of Minnesota Law School from 2004-2010. Judge Strauss received his Bachelor's of Arts degree and Master's of Business Administration from the University of Kansas. He also received his law degree from the University of Kansas School of Law. After our speakers give their remarks, we will turn to you, the audience, for questions. If you have a question, please enter into the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen, and we will handle questions as we can towards the end of today's program. With that, thank you for being here with us today. Judge Strauss, the floor is yours. Thank you, Ryan, and uh, thanks to the Federalist Society for putting together a really great program on an important issue. Um, Bivens has been... uh, in the in the public eye and in the Supreme Court's eye for a number of years now, um, they've taken I think three cases over the past five or six years, from Ziegler versus Abbasi to the Egbert versus Boulay case, and we have a absolutely wonderful panel today. Um, on one side, um, and I, I, actually, I think we're going to have some room for agreement here because uh, we talked a little bit before before starting the seminar. But I'm still going to say we got to have some disagreement. So on one side, we have Anya Bidwell, who is on the Institute for Justice's brief um, supporting uh, Boulay. And, you know, for, for the sake of argument, we'll say that she's more on the pro Bivens side than the anti Bivens side. On the other side, we have Aaron Holly, um, who's. Uh, is from the Independent Women's Law Center, which wrote an amicus brief on behalf of Egbert. And again, just for the sake of argument, we'll say at least in this particular case um, that she is on the anti-Bivens side. What we'll do is we'll hear a presentation um, from each of our panelists, and then I have a list of questions uh, to ask and to, to promote discussion. And then hopefully, as Ryan mentioned, at the end of the discussion, we'll have time for Q&A. So without further ado, um, I will turn it over to Anya, who will start our discussion. Sounds great, Judge. Thanks very much. And thank you for uh, to FedSoc for putting together this wonderful panel. And it's an honor to be um, a part of it. Uh, so the oral argument in Egbert really unearthed how multidimensional the Bivens issue really is. And I think unpacking these many dimensions is a good way for us to understand it. Uh, So there were two questions presented, uh, even though there were originally three questions, including whether it's worth overruling Bivens altogether. The first question was whether a Bivens cause of action exists under the Fourth Amendment uh, when the defendant works for an immigration agency or when the defendant performs an immigration-related function. Um, And the second uh, was whether Bivens applies in the First Amendment retaliation context. Uh, I'm going to give you an overview of the oral argument as it relates to these questions, and then briefly describe uh, where I stand on those issues and where the justices also seem to be leaning, at least as far as we can uh, glean from the oral arguments. So within the first question, uh, justices wanted to really focus on three things. First, is uh, this an extension of Bivens uh, when you have a routine garden variety excessive force or search and seizure claim, uh, but it simply is against the defendant who is any anyone other than a narcotics agent, right? So as long as the defendant is not working for the DAA, is it an extension of Bivens? Second, the justices were interested in whether if it is an extension, are there special factors that would counsel hesitation against extending Bivens? even in a routine Fourth Amendment claim. Third, uh, there was some interest uh, with regard to how we should think about the Westfall Act. 
Um, is it an alternative remedy that should counsel against extending Bivens, or is it an authorization of Bivens by Congress? Um, and if it is an authorization, then how strong of an authorization is it? And uh, within the second question, question presented, uh, uh, justices, um, uh, well, there weren't really any questions on uh, the second question presented with regard to the First Amendment retaliation claim, which uh, makes me think that the justices, generally speaking, there is a majority that thinks that an extension of Bivens, that the First Amendment retaliation claim would be an extension of Bivens, and that there are factors counseling hesitation against extending it into that sphere. Um, and as I mentioned, the third question, only Justice Breyer really seemed interested in exploring kind of uh, the value of Bivens and also the underlying theme of implying remedies directly under the Constitution. Uh, we can certainly get to this broad theme here, but judging by the oral argument and by the explicit denial of this question presented, uh, the court is uh, likely to put this one on the back burner, uh, although we can talk about you know, whether it should do so or not. Uh, so with respect to the first question presented, uh, petitioner in Egbert took a very hard line on Bivens, harder even than the government, uh, which also argued in the case as an amicus. Um, according to the petitioner, even a routine Fourth Amendment claim involving someone other than a narcotics agent is an extension of Bivens. And since extensions are disfavored, it should not be permitted. From my point of view, it is hard to see how uh, any claim involving routine policing, which I would argue is the case in Egbert, since at the heart of the Fourth Amendment claim there is that a government agent entered private property and searched a car without a warrant and using excessive force, that this routine policing claim is somehow meaningfully different from Bivens itself. I don't think it is. Um, there is no highly ranked officer like the DOJ officials in Abbasi. The constitutional right at issue is not different. We're talking about the Fourth Amendment claim. Uh, there is plenty of judicial guidance on excessive force and search and seizure cases. Um, and the judiciary does not disrupt other branches when adjudicates such excessive force cases. So these, the list of meaningful differences that Abbasi provided, you really don't it's hard to see how this case would be meaningfully different. And even if we accept that Egbert would be an extension of Bivens, uh, there are no factors counseling hesitation in routine excessive force Bivens cases. The test, according to Abbasi, um, is whether the judiciary is well suited to weigh the costs and benefits um, of allowing a cause of um, uh, action to move forward. And here in routine policing cases, the judiciary is unquestionably well suited. Uh, the cost of extending Bivens here is really not high. After all, we are not talking about recognizing a new substantive legal remedy, um, the concern that was articulated in Abbasi, uh, or as Wilkie versus Robbins puts it, we are not talking about creating a new species of litigation. So the costs are really not that great. There are, however, plenty of benefits for the judiciary to get involved, such as that federal officials, uh, just like their state and local counterparts, uh, are held to account for excessive force violations, which are often the most flagrant constitutional violations out there. Um, the Supreme Court seemed attuned to this line of reasoning during the oral argument. Um, the justices um, kept pushing on what exactly are the cases that are permitted by Abbasi and by Bivens. Uh, this really was best articulated by Chief Justice Roberts, who very early on asked whether there really could be a Fourth Amendment free zone, kind of, you know, constitution free zone that Judge Willett talked about and Judge Justice Roberts talked about Fourth Amendment free zone simply because the routine policing took place at the border. So while I wouldn't go as far as to suggest that the justices are ready to say that there are no meaningful differences between Egbert and Bivens, I do think that you know, there is a chance, however slight, that at the very least they would allow you know, Egbert's Fourth Amendment claim to uh, go forward. And if not that, then maybe at least the justices would say that 
would at least contrast this case to a routine domestic policing case and maybe provide some sort of a protection zone for routine domestic policing cases and say that with, within the search and seizure context of domestic policing, Abbasi, um, you know, articulated a search and seizure zone that should be respected. And interestingly enough, this was the government's view, too, uh, during the oral argument, the Solicitor General's office conceded that Bivens should not be allowed uh, in many such cases. For example, in a response to Chief Justice Roberts' request to provide an appropriate Bivens scenario, uh, the government said that, you know, in a case involving an FBI agent or an agent of the Park Police or the Marshal Service, uh, that would be a routine domestic search and seizure claim or excessive force claim. So I do feel like there is a room here for some positive uh, Bivens law being made. Um, and I will just briefly touch on the Westfall Act question and then pass it on to Erin. Uh, there are um, so some questions about the FTCA and the Westfall Act. Um, the focus was very much on whether the FTCA is the type of an alternative remedy that should counsel hesitation in extending Bivens. Um, and the response by Boulez counsel, I think, was exactly spot on. Uh, Carlson versus Green specifically says that Congress made it crystal clear, uh, and that's words from the Supreme Court's opinion, that the FTCA is a complementary remedy to Bivens, not a substitute. And we also have congressional comments during the 19th 1974 amendments to the FTCA to show for it, uh, where the Congress specifically talks about these causes of action being counterparts. Um, and in addition, we have the Westfall Act itself, right? Um, the Westfall Act made the federal court remedy against the United States government exclusive, but it exempted constitutional claims against individual officers, uh, which is essentially a codification of Bivens. Importantly, uh, Congress in 1988, when it codified Bivens, legislated against the backdrop of the Supreme Court cases, which at that point acknowledged a Bivens cause of action, even in cases like involving First Amendment retaliation, right? Harlow versus Fitzgerald, for example. This case is known for creating a modern day standard for qualified immunity. But at the time, uh, what would have been clear to any legal observer is that Bivens is so well established that federal officials were on par with state and local officials when it came to constitutional accountability. And, you know, Butts versus Economist specifically talked about this. So this meant that um, Congress could prohibit suits against federal officers uh, in state courts, which they did in Westfall Act, they cut off that common law remedy, right? And you would still have this individual remedy against these officials in federal courts. Uh, importantly, even in Hernandez versus Mesa, uh, you know, the Supreme Court acknowledges that Congress left Bivens where it founded it in 1988. And in 1988, Bivens was much stronger uh, than uh, what counsel for petitioners is asking for here. Um, so, you know, from my perspective, at the very least, Bivens would have been permitted uh, under the Fourth Amendment for claims against um, federal police. So that's kind of uh, my broad thinking on these three things that seemed to be on the forefront of the judges, justices thinking when they were asking the questions. And, and uh, we can talk about sort of uh, question presented number three and the broader implications of Bivens and what Bivens really is later in the discussion. I will now pass this on to Aaron. Sounds good, Aaron. Thank you so much, Judge Strauss. Uh, thank you to FedSoc um, and to Anya for that uh, great presentation. Uh, there is a lot of agreement um, and also some disagreement, uh, which is good uh, for this uh, sort of panel. Um, and I wanted to set, uh, I'm sure many of you know, but I wanted to set this case just sort of in its uh, context uh, for two reasons. Uh, one, because it's fascinating. Um, and two, uh, because under the Supreme Court's precedent, uh, this context is directly relevant as to whether Bivens 
protections should be extended. Uh, so if we look at the context here, Respondent Bo is a U.S. citizen. Uh, he owns and runs the Smuggler's Inn. Um, as some might say, sort of hiding in plain sight. Um, the Smuggler's Inn is a bed and breakfast. Uh, his property abuts the Canadian property, uh, or excuse me, the Canadian border. Uh, so it's right across uh, the, from the Canadian border. Um, this town is known uh, to be a place uh, for uh, drug smuggling, uh, people smuggling, those sorts of things. Um, and the bed and breakfast itself uh, is known uh, to, uh, or at least suspected of that sort of uh, conduct. Uh, the respondent here, he drives a car uh, with the smuggler uh, license plate uh, tag. Um, he's worked as a confidential informant uh, for the Customs and Border Patrol. And subsequent to this case, uh, he also pled guilty uh, to uh, Canadian violations uh, of immigration law. So just a bit of background to say, you know, why uh, the, the Border uh, Patrol agent here might have been interested uh, in the smugglers in. Uh, in the day in question, uh, the uh, our petitioner Egbert uh, went to the smugglers in um, to question a, uh, a person who was staying at the inn who was from Turkey uh, about his travel plans on finding that they were uh, le legitimate. Um, he had no further questions, um, but he did get in sort of this altercation uh, with respondent. Um, respondent requested that he leave. Uh, Egbert refused to do so. Uh, Egbert pushed him to the ground, uh, which results in the, the Fourth Amendment claim here. Um, and then uh, Bull reports Egbert uh, to his superiors, uh, at which point uh, the allegation is uh, that Egbert uh, calls the IRS and says, hey, you might want to check out this guy. Uh, so that's where uh, the First Amendment, first, uh, first Amendment retaliation claim comes in. Um, so a bit of context. So now to sort of the buckets of questions uh, that Anya posed. Uh, and the first one is, you know, is this a routine claim uh, for a Fourth Amendment Bivens claim? Um, I would argue not. Um, and indeed, uh, both Petitioner Egbert, uh, as well as the Solicitor General, uh, said no. Um, and this is for a couple of reasons. Uh, first, there are national security uh, concerns present here. Uh, as the government recognized, you are on uh, literally uh, a step away uh, from the Canadian border. You are uh, a border uh, patrol agent who is charged uh, with keeping uh, the United States safe. Um, you've got um, a suspected tip of someone who's in the country illegally. So that was the context for the border and protection agents uh, action here. Um, so you do have those national security concerns uh, that were not present um, in the original Bivens context. Um, and again, even the government, uh, although they were not willing to say you should never extend Bivens, uh, as was Egbert's argument, uh, they said you should not extend Bivens here. Uh, it is a new context. It is a new case. Uh, and there are these special national security concerns uh, that counsel against expansion here. Um, I think some of the interesting things uh, from the oral argument is the question as to, to how you determine whether it's an extension. Uh, do you focus on the job? Uh, Justice Breyer pointed out that I think there are 83 uh, different federal agencies um, that might be involved with citizens. Uh, do you look at their specific job as a border patrol agent? Or do you look, um, as Justice uh, Barrett suggested at one point, do you look at the specific task uh, that they are performing? Forming. And how does that uh, come into play under the Bivens uh, test? Is, is it um, uh, Sarah Harris uh, arguing on behalf of Egbert said that you need to look at both things. You need to look at both the statutory mission uh, of the enforcement agency involved, uh, as well as the particular mission uh, of the particular uh, context uh, and the particular officer involved. So she said you need to look at both. On the other side, uh, the uh, counsel for Bowles suggested that, you know, you you can't possibly have uh, this sort of a free zone, uh, as Anya said. Um, but again, if we look at the specific facts of this case, you have a Border Patrol agent who was investigating a tip about a possible border violation uh, that would have national security and national relations implications, according to the Solicitor General. So that does seem an extension of Bowles. It's not your routine Fourth Amendment uh, claim uh, that takes place 
place within you know, the, the four corners uh, of the United States and doesn't involve uh, those national security concerns. Um, so, so that's uh, the first question presented. Um, I agree with Anya with the respect to the second question presented. Uh, the court didn't seem much interested. Um, even Felicia Ellsworth, who was representing a uh, respondent here, admitted that she had an uphill climb uh, for her client with a First Amendment retaliation claim. Uh, there's special considerations just by the nature of retaliation claims, um, in addition to uh, just the extension of Bivens in general. And then I think that gets us to sort of uh, this third question presented uh, that the court declined certiorari on. Um, and Egbert here had explicitly asked the Supreme Court to take up the question and to decide whether Bivens was incorrectly decided. Um, to me, that's one of the most fascinating parts of this case. Um, I think we have a series of decisions uh, for the last you know, 30 some years in which the court has continually paired back Bivens. Uh, and I think this is a realization uh, by the court uh, that implying causes of action uh, is not for the court, but rather is for a congressional uh, cause of action. And I've been thinking of this in the context, actually, of sort of the, the court shift um, away from purposism um, and to originalism and textualism. And I think in that vein, a uh, 2015 speech uh, by Justice Elena Kagan is really instructive. Um, and in that speech, uh, she was speaking uh, about the late Chief Justice Scalia and how much he had changed how the court goes about its ordinary business of deciding cases. And she's just got some fabulous statements in there that sort of explain how we got Bivens um, and also why it might be a bad idea uh, to uh, um, extend Bivens um, outside uh, of the context um, or, or might even arguably uh, be a reason to overrule it. Um, so she joked that, you know, we're all textualists now um, in 2015 and said that if someone had even mentioned statutory interpretation to her while she was in law school, she might not have known what that meant. Um, and that was really the time period, as Justice O'Scan or Judge, excuse me, O'Scanlan has pointed out, um, that the purpose of ism was the dominant uh, strain of legal interpretation, sort of this common law lawmaking uh, in the legal academy um, at the time. Um, and then you get decisions like Bivens, uh, in which the court says, you know, you need to have a constitutional remedy. Um, they implied a constitutional cause of action. The court acknowledged in Bivens that the Fourth Amendment does not, in so many words, uh, provide for its enforcement by an award of money damages. Uh, today, I think that would be the end of the line, even for justices like Justice Kagan, um, who sometimes is on the more liberal uh, framework uh, in the ideological spectrum. Um, but for her, I think the fact uh, that the Fourth Amendment does not, uh, quote, in so many words, uh, provide for the enforcement uh, through this mechanism would mean that it's up to Congress uh, to create it. Uh, so the Supreme Court since Bivens, of course, has returned to text, structure, and history, uh, leaving Bivens, as the court has acknowledged, sort of an anachronism, or, or as uh, one justice said, the relics of the heady days uh, in which the court assumed common lawmaking powers. And so I think you have the, the backdrop of this sort of question about who it is, uh, what branch of government uh, should be creating causes of action uh, for money damage. I think it's informing the court's jurisprudence as it continually narrows Bivens. Uh, so this recognition that it's not for the court uh, to do these sorts of things results um, in, in, I think, a narrowing and a whittling away uh, at Bivens. And I think for that reason, I, I suspect that the court will find uh, that this is a new context, that it involves border protection agencies, and, and that Bivens cannot be extended, um, given the underlying sort of problems uh, with that decision. Um, and then the last thing I will say is that there is this tension, uh, as the Chief Justice notes in oral argument, that this whole uh, sort of Bivens framework depends on a fact-specific contextual inquiry, which again is not something the Supreme Court ordinarily does. Uh, so again, I think just another indication um, that the initial Bivens court uh, went wrong. Outstanding. Um, I'm going to take and, and for those in the audience, spend some time thinking about if you have questions for the panelists, because I'm going to try to leave 15, 10 to 15 minutes at the end. But in the meantime, I'm going to take a little bit of a moderator's privilege here. And as we were discussing, actually, before the program started, I've had the um, the honor of writing a lot of the Eighth Circuit opinions uh, on Bivens since around since Ziegler versus Abbasi. And I'm, the teacher in me, the professor in me is still 
still there. And I want to briefly summarize what I think is going on here in a, in hopefully a helpful way. When we looked at Ziegler and we looked at Hernandez uh, in the Eighth Circuit, it really comes down to a two-step process. Step one, which is a factually intensive inquiry, is to determine whether or not there's a new context. And if there's a new context, and only if there's a new context, would you go on to step two? If it's an old context, and there's three contexts here, there's the uh, there's Bivens, which was a Fourth Amendment claim, and obviously the facts matter, but we can get into those later. Carlson, which was a cruel and unusual punishment claim, and Davis, which was a six, uh, excuse me, a sex discrimination claim under the Fifth Amendment. So if it falls into one of those categories, you're not extending Bivens and the Bivens uh, claim wise. But if, there, if it's a new context, you go on to, and, and by the way, on that first point, what you're hearing between the two panelists, I think, is Aaron might uh, define those cases a little bit narrowly, more narrowly than Anya would. Anya might be a little broader. Um, and there's debate because it's so open-ended among the courts of appeal on how to frame the top, how to frame whether it's a new context or not. So it's a, it's a complicated inquiry. Uh, the second step, you, figure, you have to figure out that if it's a new context, is, is, are there reasons to counsel hesitation? Are there reasons not to expand Bivens to a new context? Keep in mind at the second step, and it's hard for judges uh, to, 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 do, to sort of balance these policy concerns. It's a really, I mean, I don't really do policy, but the second step requires us to talk about the policy and think about what the effect on the other branches of government might be. But we have to, we have to think about that and then uh, figure out whether or not um, there's a reason not to extend it. And so it's a really, this is a tough inquiry for judges and recognize the Supreme Court has not extend, extended Bivens or recognized a Bivens cause of action for over 30 years. So that's one thing to keep in mind um, as you as you litigate or encounter Bivens cases. So with that, you know, sort of uh, sort of factual background in, in mind, I thought I would jump right into the questions. Both of you mentioned question three and question three was whether to overrule Bivens. What the court's been doing over the past 30 years and particularly lately is taking individual cases out of the circuits and saying, uniformly, this is not a new, or this is a new Bivens context and we're not going to extend it. If that's what they've been doing, why not just take the issue uh, that was presented and, and on a silver platter to them, which is whether to overrule Bivens? And either one of you, Anya, do you want to go first? <laughs> um, yeah, that was an interesting uh, development, especially because uh, the Institute for Justice, we have two petitions pending before the court that specifically present the, um, you know, what happens to Bivens in domestic policing cases, right? So in both of our cases, we, it's, uh, it does not involve any kind of immigration. So I would argue that, you know, Abbasi is very clear about search and seizure context in which it arose, and as you judge mentioned, that I would argue for a broader Fourth Amendment understanding of what meaningful differences actually are. Uh, so I do find it interesting that the question presented, uh, that, that, that the court did not accept the question presented. They're clearly saying that they are not interested in overruling Bivens. Um, and, uh, you know, from my perspective, and I think my own colleagues would depart with me on this. Uh, part of me thinks that uh, at least if question three is presented and somehow the court wants to go into that direction, right, and explicitly state that Bivens is now overturned and is no longer good law, then there will be much more uh, clarity uh, with regards to what to do with federal officials. You will essentially no longer have any kind of constitutional accountability for them and you would have for state and local officials under section 1983. So perhaps that would at least be a catalyst for Congress to do something about this because, you know, if, if Bivens continues to be whittled down at but continues to technically be on the books as good law, that creates an unhelpful uh, uncertainty. So uh, the Supreme Court really needs to, you know, draw clear lines, provide clear guidance. If it retains Bivens, it needs to make it clear 
how and in what situations with broad rules, not just fact by fact. Hernandez was immigration related this way and Egbert is immigration related that way. You know, it's really hard then for lower courts to interpret it and for, you know, plaintiffs and defendants to understand. So it needs to either do that or uh, overruling it, which I don't think they will do here since they explicitly denied question present. Uh, Question presented number three would still be, you know, would also be helpful because at least there will be then no doubt what the heck the court means by, you know, having a Bivens cause of action alive. And, and that would too present then questions with regards to the constitutionality of the Westfall Act, right? Because the Westfall Act is taking away the common law remedies uh, that uh, plaintiffs had for violations of individual rights historically since the founding of this country, right? So the Westfall Act is taking away those individual remedies. And now, you know, if it's, if, if, if Bivens is not read, you know, if, if Westfall Act is really not allowing any Bivens claims and Bivens is no longer good law, then perhaps the Westfall Act is unconstitutional all by itself. And we, we need some sort of ability to sue federal officials for violations of individual rights, as we were able to do at the founding. So th there will be other questions raised if, if question, you know, if Bivens is overruled. But uh, that's just, uh, you know, my two cents on the matter. And as I said, my colleagues and I, we vigorously disagree on that. So. If, you know, if, if one of them were doing this uh, webinar, they would say, no, never. So <laughs> this is my view. <laughs> yeah, I think those are those are all great points. And it's interesting to think about why the court didn't take it, um, because I would suspect that there are at least four justices who think as an initial matter that Bivens is wrongly decided. And indeed, as we've seen um, over the last 30 years, as Judge Strauss said, there uh, the court has refused to extend Bivens ever or, or even to affirm a Bivens case. Um, so so there's this um, real narrowing uh, of Bivens um, uh, to these specific cases, maybe to these specific fact patterns. And I think sort of as uh, Ani hinted at, as a, as a way of sort of developing the law, it's not very satisfactory for either plaintiffs or defendants um, or, or federal court of appeals judges and district court judges um, who are left sort of struggling with, you know, is this the same fact pattern? Um, it's really the case that only the Supreme Court can answer that. So, so I think all of these are reasons uh, that the court should take a hard look at whether uh, Bivens uh, should be overruled. I think it's out of step uh, with current Supreme Court doctrine and precedent and how the court interprets the Constitution. Um, but I agree that in this case, since they specifically declined uh, the question presented, that they're unlikely to reach that question. You know, related to that, what about Justice Barrett? You mentioned, Aaron, that um, that you think there's at least four justices that don't think it's right as an original matter. As I recall, Justice Barrett was appointed after Hernandez, and she's sort of the wild card. Did, did either of you get a sense, and Aaron, you can take this first, of where Justice Barrett may stand on this and the broader question of whether Bivens should be overruled? So I think from her questions at oral argument, Justice Barrett seemed very skeptical of extending Bivens. Um, she sort of talked about this idea of, you know, looking carefully um, at the facts uh, to make sure um, that they are close parallels to previous Bivens actions. Um, I, I think the reason to do that is because you have concerns uh, with sort of the legitimacy of Bivens, because um, it's sort of this, this narrowing rule of construction of one of the Supreme Court's own cases. Um, and, you know, I, generally speaking, you should, you know, interpret a case for what it says, um, not narrow it. So why would you narrow it? Maybe because you think that there's there's an issue underlying it. Um, you can also sort of pull those threads out of Hernandez and other cases of Bossy. But, but um, I suspect her, her idea of narrowing those cases would come out of a concern that Bivens was wrongly decided. Um, that would be consistent, I think, with her, um, you know, views about originalism um, and deferring to Congress when, it is in Congress's wheelhouse and those sorts of things. But I agree with you that we don't have a clear indication um, of her views on this. And I think uh, there was a very interesting exchange between Justice Amy Coney Barrett and uh, Sarah Harris, who represented uh, petitioner uh, Egbert, where Judge Barrett, Justice Barrett, uh, she uh, was kind of talking about, does it matter what agency the officer is working for, or does it matter what function this officer is performing? And, uh, you know, uh, counsel for Egbert would not concede uh, that, you know, if uh, 
unlike the U.S. government, frankly, that if this is, uh, you know, somebody working for a CBP uh, agency, but performing, you know, traditional policing functions that Bivens should be allowed. So I think that she is kind of working within, you know, precedent, looking at what Abbasi is talking about. And I don't think she is convinced, uh, at least when, you know, judging by the oral argument that the distinctions fact distinctions from Bivens itself would automatically make it a new context and then would not allow a cause of action under Bivens. So th th there's a lot of complexity in in her understanding of Bivens and she's thinking about it. You know, as I, as I mentioned in my introduction, like in a very multifaceted way, because the Bivens cause of action turned out to, to be a very multifaceted type of a topic, even though fundamentally it's a very simple question, you know, should federal officials be held accountable for violations of constitutional rights the way state and local officials are. Fascinating. So here comes a here comes a broader sort of um, law professor type question, which is, um, you know, in in several areas, and we saw this in, and I'm not going to ask about this other area, but just use it as an example in SELA law, um, the removal case, um, removing executive officers. Um, the Supreme Court has talked about, for example, that, that the president does have that function, but it's been clear in these types of cases. Well, if we've allowed if we've allowed things in the past, we're not going to allow our new precedent to disrupt that old precedent. We're going to leave that old precedent alone. And you see that a little bit in the Bivens context, where you see that a, a number of the justices are uncomfortable with Bivens. We don't know if it's a majority that want to overrule it or not yet, but they're uncomfortable with it. But they're saying let's go ahead and keep it to what we what we said you know 40 years ago and let's not extend it out any further so on one side i think ij's position might be well that doesn't make any sense because you need to ex extend it further if it if the same policies that underlie bivens to begin with are still there maybe it should be extended and on the other side um, Aaron and others would say, well, that's not a good way to do stare decisis because if it's wrong to begin with, you should just overrule it. And so I guess my question is, is what do you think about that as a practice? The fact that the court is limiting those prior cases to the facts, um, leaving a lot of people in the dark about whether, how to, whether and how to expand or contract it. And I'll, I'll open it up to either one of you because that's a, that's a very broad question. <laughs> well, a judge, uh, what, what the Supreme Court said 40 years ago with respect to Bivens, right, is actually very broad. Kind of the understanding at the time about what would, first of, first of all, they were looking at it as a complementary cause of action to what was happening in state courts. At the time, you could sue federal officials in state courts. So they're looking at it, one, as a complementary cause of action, and two, as this ability to imply rights under the Constitution. And after Bivens, as you mentioned, you have Davis versus Passman, you have Carson versus Green, you have cases like Butts versus Economo, where the Supreme Court speaks in broad terms about accountability for federal officials and that being on the same level as accountability for state and local officials. So, you know, for the longest time after Bivens, not longest, that's certainly an exaggeration for, you know, uh, <laughs> eight years, <laughs> like say 10 years or so, you actually do have um, uh, the Supreme Court really thinking about Bivens in broad terms. And if we are talking about preserving Bivens as precedent, that's kind of, it was, a broad precedent, right? Uh, winnowing it down and limiting it to its facts is essentially overruling it, uh, but in anything but name. And that I think could be very deleterious to, you know, to our system of government because it's when precedent is overturned, that makes sense. When precedent is robustly enforced, that makes sense. When precedent is limited to its facts, it doesn't make sense. It provides window dressing. Uh, for anybody who wants uh, to take it. So, yeah, so I agree with a lot of that. I will say one thing I think, though, that, that we fundamentally disagree on, um, and is that is not that it's unimportant to hold federal 
officials accountable for violations. Um, that's undoubtedly true. But I think the question is, is who should create those causes of actions and what should they look like? I think Bivens aired because it allowed the Supreme Court to create a cause of action rather than delegating that or, or leaving, I should say, that authority uh, with Congress where it belongs. So the question is not whether federal officials should be held accountable, but rather who should do that holding accountable. Um, with respect to overruling precedent, I think that's a fantastic point. Um, and if you look at a number of the Supreme Court's recent cases. I think about um, the Smith case, um, Fulton, um, which narrowly um, uh, you know, upheld uh, Smith, but, but did so in a way that severely limits that case. Um, and also, if you look at Kaiser versus Wilkie, uh, that was a case in which uh, the Our Doctrine uh, was um, in question. And, and a lot of people thought that the Supreme Court was going to overrule Our, which requires agencies um, or requires courts, I should say, to defer not only to agency interpretations, but to agency interpretations of their own regulations. And a lot of people thought that was just crazy and then the court would overrule it. But what the court does is come up with this multi-factor test that is Justice Gorsuch say as in dissent is really a zombified version of our. And I agree with Anya that doesn't do, that doesn't, it's deleterious uh, to the justice system. And when we have these um, upholding of cases that, that is in many ways uh, overruling or limiting a case to its facts. So, so I think, um, you know, the, the court, um, you know, often uh, writes in, in, you know, bold strokes and says this is wrong or right. Um, but recently, the court has also taken to limiting cases, um, I think, um, to preserve them. Um, but, it, but in a way that departs um, from, uh, I think, a, a fair reading of the initial case. And, uh, and I think, oh, go ahead. Yeah, I would just like to briefly respond to Erin uh, because I think there is an interesting discussion to be had here with respect to the Westfall Act, right? And kind of what is it that Westfall Act authorizes? Because if the issue is that uh, Congress, you know, needs to speak with respect to the cause of action, then the Westfall Act and the Supreme Court has acknowledged it uh, authorizes a Bivens cause of action. I think I have it ready down like the exact language here. Yeah. A civil action against a federal employee, which is brought for a violation of the Constitution of the United States. Right. So the court, the Supreme Court has acknowledged this as a Bivens cause of action. It was passed in 1988. Right. And the question is, how broad of a cause of action was Bivens in 1988 uh, when Congress passed the Westfall Act? And I think that in 1988, it was a very robust cause of action. I know Justice Alito would, uh, Alito would disagree with me. Scalito, that's interesting. <laughs> I know that Justice Alito would disagree with me, right? But in 1988, Bivens was much more robust than what we, uh, than how we look at it today. So th th there is that aspect of it. And, and, and then, of course, there is this whole thing about, you know, whether Bivens is policy or whether Bivens is the manifestation of original intent, right? There is this famous case, the Apollon by Justice Story, where he talks about how it is the job of the judiciary to see whether the law was violated and then to order a remedy if it was, and that it's the job of Congress then to worry about chilling effects and things like indemnification. And, uh, you know, uh, Bivens in many respects is about enforcing individual rights as we have always been able to do at the founding. And if the constitution simply provides the bill of rights and lists them without intending for them to be enforced, then it does seem like the Bill of Rights is simply an empty promise if we are not looking at it as the law, but waiting for, this, for, for Congress to provide a cause of action. That's a broader argument uh, sort of in terms of, you know, uh, whether Congress whether we even need for Congress to speak on this. But even if we do, uh, I would argue that Congress did speak about it and it spoke about it in 1988 when Bivens was still very strong. All right, um, I'm gonna move to some questions from the audience. I promised I'd do it with about 15 minutes to go and here we are, um, it's gone by quick. I'm gonna ask the question, this came up in a case that, uh, that I was on. So I'm gonna ask the question and not comment any further, but I think it's a good one. How will any ruling on Bivens affect law enforcement officers who are sworn both to state and federal law? They're dual, dual officers, and it's not always clear whose authority those officers are operating under. Yeah, I'm happy to take it on there if you'd like me to. Um, that, that, uh, that, that's a very interesting question and um, kind of really... Uh, 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 
put this uh, issue of uh, dual track of constitutional accountability front and center, because the way the lower courts have been reading it so far is that so long as you have, you know, a, a state officer or a local officer on a task force with a federal officer or deputized uh, by the U.S. Marshal, even if that officer is performing a functions that are related to his, you know, work as a state officer or a local officer, that officer can still take advantage of the Bivens regime, which means that it's much more difficult to sue that officer. So this two-track constitutional accountability in a way makes Bivens into a loophole where even those who are subjected to 1983 accountability, like state and local officials, can basically say, forget about this one. We now are in Bivens territory and, you know, anything is meaningfully different from Bivens and you can't sue us. So that's kind of an interesting situation. And at the very least, you know, if you're a task force officer, you should be subjected, you know, to both 1983 and Bivens, right? And 1983 should not be excluded. And if it is, then we have, then the Bivens issue is even more pronounced and urgent uh, because it's such an easy way to escape accountability even under Section 1983. Karen, anything to add? No, it's really interesting. I've not thought about this. Um, so, so, yeah, it's really interesting. I think it brings up sort of Justice Barrett's questions about whether you look at function or whether you look at uh, the, sort of the job title. Um, and, and I don't know, I don't think that came up at oral argument, the dual um, dual positions, but that that is something that would be relevant, I think, to that discussion. Yeah, I can tell you that we uh, had a cross petition in one of our cases to the Supreme Court involving specifically this question, and it was denied. So, <laughs> so it's interesting for all of us, maybe not interesting for the Supreme Court, at least not yet. <laughs> um, so another question is, and I, this actually mirrors a question that I had, which is why I'm asking it. Um, so and it's really, I think, mostly from to IJ's position, which is, does the Constitution actually require a judicial remedy uh, for un unconstitutional conduct by federal officials? And if so, where does it come from? Because that seems to be a, a thesis of, of IJ's brief. And I thought I'd give you a chance to respond to that question from the audience. Yeah, the, 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 there is a big sort of um, uh, the, the discomfort with Bivens comes from this idea that it's true you had you had individual rights accountability at common law, but that it naturally doesn't translate into uh, individual rights accountability directly under the Constitution. Um, and one of the uh, kind of uh, uh, one reason that courts are queasy is the Erie Doctrine, right, that abolished the general common law. And so the thinking is, you know, this were general common law and now, you know, we don't have it anymore and you shouldn't have a cause of action without a congressional uh, permission slip. Uh, but at the very least, you know, Bivens is if nothing else, it's federal common law, right? Because it is an area of peculiarly federal concern in the words of the Supreme Court in Boyle versus United States, Tex Corporation, for example, uh, where you have, you know, specifically federal interests and Justice Harlan talks about it in Bivens and how important it is there. So at the very least, uh, Bivens is federal common law, but also in terms of constitution, we're not just looking at like self-executing provisions like the takings clause, for example, right? We are looking at, you know, the promises made uh, uh, to us as the people about, about rights that we have. And in the system of government that we have here in the United States, you really can't enforce those rights uh, if the courts are unwilling to do that because you have nowhere to turn to. So so uh, while 1983 is a great cause of action to have, and it is an important one, and it totally made sense after the Civil War when state and local officials were not interested in protecting individual rights, especially of folks like slaves, the former slaves, right? 
it totally makes this passing statute 1983 made sense. It was, you know, um, it, it's not a necessary precondition for being able to sue under the Constitution. Well, let me add, and, and I'll ask Aaron a, a companion question, which is IJ's brief, may, and, and this is reflecting what you just said, argues that the originalist slash Blackstonian view yep. is that the damages remedy actually, quote, springs from the right themselves. Um, and a view that actually I think is quite similar to what Chief Justice Marshall may have said in Marbury about all rights needing a remedy. There must be a remedy. That's right. Right. And then you have the common law background that you mentioned. So, um, Aaron, you mentioned that that um, folks are skeptical on the court of, of the origins of Bivens. But isn't that a pretty good originalist answer? So I don't think so. I agree um, that, you know, Chief Justice Marshall does say uh, that um, basically if there's a right, there must be a remedy. Um, but but it's not clear why that's true in a system of positive law. Um, so the system implemented by the founders was quite different from common law. Um, at common law, you had judges who were actually discovering rights. Um, so they were looking to customs, uh, they were looking at prior precedent in order to discover what the law quote is. We don't have that system anymore. We have a system in which Congress and the elected branches, the president with his um, signature, uh, passes legislation that governs uh, our republic. It's not a system in which judges uh, discover or, or, or make the law, they interpret it. So I think that's a fundamental difference here. And you do have some provisions uh, like the takings clause that Annie mentions uh, that's more self-executing, um, that, that does provide a sort of remedy. Um, but the first, uh, the other Bill of Rights amendments don't have that sort of self-executing um, provision. Um, and I think if you are looking uh, to the differences between common law and to the structural separation of powers that the founders actually implemented, uh, they intended that authority to go to Congress um, and not to the courts. Okay. Um, a, side, a side question, which is, um, and, I, and I'll address this to Aaron as well. Um, another argument I've heard, and um, I think it's an interesting one, is Bivens exists. And I know it's a judge made uh, a doctrine, but should Congress have we've been talking about maybe Congress will act if Bivens is overruled. But maybe the opposite should be true. Maybe Congress should have the re responsibility to overrule Bivens and then and then 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 we'll be in a different spot. So I guess my question for you is why not put the onus on Congress to act now that the courts created the remedy? Well, the court's been clear in sort of the Clean Water Act sort of type of uh, litany of cases. Um, if you look at Riverfall Outside Bayview and you look at these other cases um, in which the court has acknowledged that perhaps uh, past courts had gone beyond uh, the, you know, the, the scope of the term uh, waters of the United States. Um, and there was this idea floating around in those cases. Well, you know, Congress could have changed that, um, but they chose not to sort of this idea of congressional acquiescence. Um, but I would argue um, even in, in that context, uh, where Congress is certainly aware of how the court has interpreted Bivens, uh, it's certainly aware of how the court has interpreted waters of the United States. Uh, but the court's role um, as an Article III court um, that swears um, to uphold the Constitution of the United States is fidelity to interpret the Constitution uh, and statutes, um, not uh, to sort of rely on this idea of congressional acquiescence. So, so I guess I would say that I don't think congressional acquiescence is a very strong ground uh, to adhere to past wrong uh, precedent. I, I would agree with Aaron in terms of Article 3 and its importance. And I actually do think that Article 3 gives court permission to interpret the Constitution. And uh, if Constitution is violated, order a remedy. In addition to Article 3 powers, there is, of course, Section 1331, which is a you know, federal question jurisdiction. Um, and Congress passed that very right at, at around the same time as it passed Section 19. Um, and uh, for, uh, for uh, 1331 all by itself as a federal question jurisdiction, plus the Article Three power is enough uh, to um, allow uh, federal courts to imply uh, remedies under the Constitution. Now, the question is, and it's kind of Dean Chimerinsky in his federal jurisdiction treaties kind of talks about it. Uh, it's sort of what is the source of power for Bivens? Because if Bivens is federal common law, then what you say, judge, is true, right? 
Congress can actually come in and specifically say Bivens is no longer, you know, a cause of action that we permit. But if the source is coming specifically from the Constitution, then Congress uh, would not be able to do that because, you know, that would actually violate the separation of powers. Okay. Um, did you want to add something, Erin? No, that's that's just really interesting. Um, so, so I think what Anya is saying, actually, um, as is that um, uh, it is unconstitutional uh, for the court uh, to overrule Bivens, uh, which is yeah, yeah. I, I don't think I agree with, but it's interesting. All it right, is unconstitutional for the right. court to overrule for the courts to overrule Bivens. Right. Right. <laughs> no, I am saying that Congress wouldn't. If 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 uh, uh, if you agree that uh, Bivens is federal common law, then Congress can certainly come in and overrule it. But if you agree that Bivens actually is Article Three, Thirteen, Thirty One powers, then uh, Article Three powers just inherently you can order remedy under the Constitution. Then Congress can't overrule it. Yeah. All right. So getting back to the Egbert case, we've talked about some broader things. Uh, this arises in a unique context. So I, I have two questions that are both related. So I'm going to ask them as we're running out of time. First of all, how much do you think that the court's interest in this case stems out of the fact that we're at the border, you know, within 25 miles of the border and you have sort of these, these um, national security type interests or at least border interests uh, playing a role? And then the second question is, and this is from an audience member, what significance will this case have for other types of situations. For example, think of policing at an airport, policing at a train station, policing in ports, um, all of those types of things. Um, Anya, I'll let you go first on this one. Yeah, I do think that's why um, it, it, it really is important to not look at Bivens in a, you know, fact by fact situation. That's just bad practice, right? It shouldn't what should matter is what kind of a function the officer is performing. So in Egbert, I would argue, and I know Erin disagrees, but, you know, I would argue that the officer is performing a, you know, a very standard Fourth Amendment routine excessive force search and seizure function. And that should go under Bivens and not be meaningfully different from Bivens at all. Erin um, uh, might disagree, but at least that a productive route to take compared to looking at, uh, you know, oh, you know, this happened, uh, you know, like one of the cases we had uh, where a Vietnam veteran was uh, beaten by security guards who worked for the VA police, you know, where uh, uh, the Fifth Circuit says, oh, you know, this happened uh, at the VA building instead of happening at a house. Therefore, you know, and these were VA security guards rather than uh, narcotics bureau uh, officials. Therefore, you know, it's not like Bivens. So uh, factual distinctions are not productive. Functional distinctions, I think, a much more uh, fruitful uh, avenue to go down. Okay, Aaron. I think that makes sense. I think also you asked, you know, why did the court take this case? Um, I think one of it, one reason is definitely the, the border concerns. Um, and the second, I think, is this case um, came out of uh, the Ninth Circuit in which the court recognized not one, um, but two new Bivens actions or, or at least arguably new Bivens actions, uh, which I think is something the court has been really clear uh, about cautioning. Uh, you know, that, that that's not something the courts are to do uh, without carefully thinking about it. So I think that's another reason the court took it. Do you think this is a case where the court was more interested in the First Amendment issue, which is the one that they didn't ask any questions about? And the fact that there was they were the first the Ninth Circuit was the first circuit to recognize the First Amendment claim. And then the Fourth Amendment claim kind of got caught up in the mix, which is really what became the focus of oral argument. I think it's quite possible. Yeah. Interesting. All right. Well, we don't have a lot of time left. I'm told we have to end at an hour, um, but I want to give you we have two minutes left and I want to give you each a minute to have any closing remarks, if you have any. You can certainly pass and we can end a minute or two early, but I want to give you give you a chance. This time we'll go in reverse order. Aaron, if you have anything to say, please feel free. Sure. So I think 
just quickly, I think we can agree um, that federal officers should be held accountable for unconstitutional actions, but I do think it's important on how that remedy is created. Um, if we do have this, this sort of general common law, um, my concern is that would it would uh, vest federal judges with a wide uh, amount of power. And as the Chief Justice has noted in other contexts, you know, when there's not clear constitutional text, that is when a judge is most at sea and most in danger of imposing his or her own personal prejudices, even if, if you know, completely innocuously. Uh, so I worry when we're sort of uh, at sea um, from that constitutional text. All right, I knew we have about 45 seconds left. Well, great. <laughs> Well, I would just say that uh, the dual track of constitutional accountability uh, really worries me. When uh, Bivens was first, you know, uh, when the court decided Bivens, uh, we had an ability to sue federal officials in state courts, and then we had an ability to sue officials uh, under uh, federal constitution. Uh, what we have today uh, under the Westfall Act is a complete closure of the state law route, right? You can't sue federal officials in state courts. And now what we're hearing from many is that Bivens is extremely limited. And from some, according to some, it's only purely on Bivens's facts. If you look at it that way, that there is no longer an ability to sue in state courts and Bivens only allows you very, very, very small amount of constitutional claims to move forward, then essentially there is an absolute immunity for violations of constitutional rights when it comes to federal officials. And then you couple that with this task force U.S. marshal situation where it's extremely easy to go under the Bivens regime. And what you see is not just a two-track system where federal officials can be sued, is that state and local officials can also take advantage of that and not be sued as well. And finally, you know, qualified immunity is still there. Let's not forget about that, right? That uh, both when it comes to federal officials and state and local officials, you have qualified immunity to overcome as well. And that is very far from the promise of where there is a right, there must be a remedy. Thanks to both of you. I learned a tremendous amount. Despite being one of the resident Eighth Circuit experts on Bivens, uh, it was an outstanding program. Um, and I just want to say how much I appreciate your participation. Thank and you. thanks to everyone in the audience as well. Thank you to our, our panelists and our moderator. On behalf of the Federalist Society, I wanted to thank our experts for the benefit of their valuable expertise today. And I want to thank you, the audience, for joining us and participating. We welcome any listener feedback by email at info at fed-shock.org. And as always, keep an eye on our website and your emails for announcements about upcoming webinars and events. Thank you all for joining us today. We are adjourned. Thank you for listening to this episode of Teleform, a podcast of the Federalist Society's practice groups. For more information about the Federalist Society, the practice groups, and to become a Federalist Society member, please visit our website at fedsoc.org.